0: this episode of the podcast is brought to you by on it. Oh, most of them are, kind of, cuz they're brought to you by Alpha Brain, cuz I'm on it. Get it. Uh. Um one of the things we do at on it, we we make these fucking beautiful kettlebells. Um we have primal bells, which are the great apes. We have chimps, howler monkeys, gorillas, orangutans, uh and Bigfoot. And I had a guy named Three Sheets. Um, he's Three Sheets on Instagram. I think that's his thing. Hold on, I'll find out real quick for you guys. Um, he did some fucking amazing artwork for these things. He took the um, kettlebells and painted them like Planet of the Apes. So like the chim- like when the chimps are going to war Planet of the Apes. Uh, yeah, he's Three Sheets on Twitter. The number three and then Sheets. He does awesome stuff. If you're into kettlebells, we have it on it, these 3D balanced kettlebells. So they function like a regular kettlebell, but they're beautiful. They're artistically designed uh, and 3D balanced. So they're not like wonky when you use them, but they look fucking sick. We have them also now in the Star Wars collection. We have Boba Fett, Darth Vader, and a Stormtrooper. We have an Iron Man kettlebell. We have too much for me to mention. Zombies have a werewolf cyclops I can go on and on Uh, but what else we have is a host of strength host of strength a a fucking shit ton of awesome strength conditioning equipment stuff that builds functional strength things like steel clubs and steel maces and battle ropes and sandbags functional strength the idea behind functional strength is exercises that promote real strength in athletics like martial arts in particular is what I'm interested in. Nothing that I have found has helped me in jiu-jitsu more than kettlebells because they make your whole body move as one unit. You could do some fantastic conditioning workout drills with them. Um, I really highly recommend Keith Weber's Extreme Kettlebell Cardio Series. He's got several DVDs out. Those are also available on it. Go to Onnit, click on the Academy link, and that's one of my favorite sections of the site. I go to it all the time. It's free. You can go check it out right now. It's hundreds of articles on diet, nutrition, um, exercise physiology, different strength and conditioning routines, Q&As with interesting people, and there's a real academy, an actual physical academy in Austin, Texas. It has 10th Planet Jiu-Jitsu classes there, Bang Muay Thai, and of course, uh, state-of-the-art Strength and conditioning equipment and classes and just it's the shit and it's got an awesome vibe to it It's got a great environment really cool people there Go to onit.com, o-n-n-i-t use the code word rogan and you will save 10% off any and all Supplements we are also brought to you by Policy genius Hmm 71% of people say they need life insurance they didn't ask me. Did they ask you? I don't know how they got those numbers if they didn't ask us. 59% have coverage. That's not, that's not a good ratio. That means at least 12% of people are procrastinating. And normally, procrastination is a bad thing. But if you've been avoiding getting life insurance, congratulations. Because while you were procrastinating, policy genius was making life insurance easier. Policy Genius is the easiest way to compare life insurance online. You can compare quotes in just five minutes. When it's that easy, putting off getting it becomes a lot harder. You can just do it. Five minutes. You can compare quotes while sitting on the couch watching TV. You can compare quotes while listening to this podcast. Holy shit. Policy Genius has helped over 4 million people shop for insurance and placed over $20 billion, with a B, billion dollars in coverage. And they don't just make life insurance easy. They also compare disability insurance, renter's insurance, and health insurance. If you care about it, they cover it. So if you need life insurance, but you've been putting it off because it's too confusing or you don't have the time, check out Policy Genius. It's the easiest way to compare top insurers, find the best value for you. There's no sales pressure and zero hassle, and it's free. Policygenius.com. When it's this easy to compare life insurance, why put it off, you fucks? Huh? Probably could have gotten away without saying, you fucks, but I'd said it. Hmm. We're also brought to you by NetSuite, folks. Has your company outgrown QuickBooks? Are, you, are your shared spreadsheets, manual processes, and legacy systems costing you time and money? Well, now is the time to move your business to the cloud. Uh. introducing NetSuite by Oracle, the business management software that handles every aspect of your business in an easy to use cloud platform. With NetSuite, you can save time, money and unneeded headaches by managing sales, finance and accounting orders and H.R. That's human resources. You fucks instantly right from your desk or even your phone. Thousands of the best-known brands and fastest-growing companies use NetSuite to manage their business, and now it's available to you. The power of the world's most popular cloud management system is more affordable than you think. Right now, NetSuite is offering you valuable insights to overcome the obstacles that are holding you back for free. Don't miss your chance to unleash your business's full potential. With this free guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, go to netsuite.com forward slash Rogan. Get NetSuite's guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, when you go to netsuite.com forward slash Rogan now. And you can download it for free, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth. Again, netsuite.com forward slash Rogan. And that's it. Say for the ads. People complain about ads. Hey, fuckers. Um, I could shove them in the middle somewhere. Sometimes I make them go a little too long. I get it. But uh, I'm a rambling type man. <laughs> my guest today, though, is not a rambler. This motherfucker's a runner. Uh, my guest today is Zach Bitter. And uh, he's a fucking beast. This guy's an animal. I mean... He ran, and we found this out like deep into the podcast, he ran 100 miles by doing a seven minute mile, seven minutes and one second per mile for 100 miles. Just holy shit. That hurts my head. (laughs) He broke the US 100 mile record. And he's doing all this, which is interesting, on a low carb diet, but not that simple. It's not that simple. It's very complicated. And he really delves into the science of uh, adjusting and manipulating his diet and really interesting. I'm fascinated by these kind of people, these ultra marathon psychos. And this guy is one of the elite. So please give it up for Zach Bitter. Joe Rogan Podcast, check it out. The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. Boom. And we're off. What's up, brother? How are you? Good, good. Thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Nice to meet you, man. You know, it's it's funny that you just brought up Doctor Atia. You know, when we were we were you were saying that you download the podcast, you were saying, mm-hmm. I gotta get that guy on.
1: Yeah, yeah. It was funny. I I was at auto downloads and that one popped up and I remember thinking about a week before that. I was like, Well when I when we first scheduled this one, I was like, I gotta tell Joe about Doctor Atia. He was one of the kind of first guys I really followed when I kinda of dove into kind of the high fat approach to to nutrition so um yeah he's a fascinating guy it was, it was a great listen i had to listen to it like twice so yeah
0: he's a weird guy he's one of those guys where you you talk to him and you think oh this is like a normal really nice guy and then as he starts getting into the medical aspect of things you go oh okay you're a fucking super genius <laughs>
1: yeah yeah he's he smart. tricks you <laughs> yeah i remember one of the first things he ever said that really kind of resonated with me was i think someone was asking him about like what the effects are or the ketogenic diet in terms of like micronutrients and what maybe he'd be missing based on kind of like that normal profile of what you're supposed to get. And, and he was just like, you know, it's, it's interesting because most of those studies and recommendations are based off of basically a standard American diet or a higher carb diet. So he's like, well, you might just not need the same. We need to do more. And he's always looking to kind of push the envelope a bit. So cool guest for sure.
0: Yeah. And you know, I'm fascinated by you, and I'm fascinated by anybody who does the kind of shit that you do. I mean, (laughs) please explain to people all the different ultra marathons you've done and, like, what you've accomplished.
1: Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because, like, I still kind of see myself as a pretty average runner because, like... Um, I mean, I competed in high school and made state cross-country and state track and that kind of thing um, for a small school. And then I went to a small Division three school and was, you know, pretty much, you know, average amongst a real good program at the D3 level. And uh, I always just did kind of like running longer, though. So, um, like, once I got done with college, I kind of decided, well, let's, let's see what's longer than some of those traditional, like, collegiate races of, like, 5K to 10 kilometers and uh you know I started kind of just dabbling that stuff and then in in 2010 I think I actually did my first ultra marathon you know partly because I was just like looking around and there turned out to be one in the state I was I was living in Wisconsin at the time and uh there was one that uh was kind of in my neck of the woods and I actually had just decided to go back to grad school and that one had a thousand dollar prize purse on it And I was like you know what if I if I can win that thousand bucks go a long way during grad school <laughs> so I did that one and I ended up winning it and it uh it definitely hooked me. It was like the type of thing where I was like I want to do more of these and um by 2011, I kinda jumped all in at the end of the year and and did three fifty milers and I think it was about a, a nine week time frame. And
0: uh <laughs> that's so crazy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and I mean it gets crazier. There's there's some freaks out there. Um there's guys who'll do like a couple in a weekend and stuff like that. So <laughs> I mean it's it never ends. Um, but yeah, you know, it was one of those things where after that I was totally hooked. So what um, is it
0: that got you hooked?
1: Um, you know, it it had to be partly just a little bit of success. You know, I wasn't necessarily used to winning. So like, I mean, I've had good races and good times relative to what you probably see like in an average person. But, you know, when I went to like a competitive 5k competitive marathon or something like that, um, you know, I wasn't going to win unless it was kind of a local race, So kind of finding, you know, it's like anything, I guess, you kind of gravitate to what you feel you're good at. And then that kind of piques your interest. Um, So that was part of it. The other part was just, uh, I really enjoyed doing the long run. Like when you break up kind of like a training week, you have like a variety of different things. You've got like kind of, you know, base level runs, you've got specific workouts for the distance. And then most training programs um, are gonna have a long run once a week. And that was the one that was always my favorite. So wrapping my head around doing a bunch of those a week instead of just one was was really kind of appealing to me and when you're putting that much time into whatever you're training for it's i think important to enjoy it so being able to kind of enjoy the training process a lot was really appealing to me um and uh and then it's just the variables Like when you're out there for that long there's so many variables to consider and it's like it's a blast for me to kind of like work through those plan for those and then adjust to them on the fly when you're out there and, you know, things inevitably go wrong or things pop up that you didn't expect. So it's it's uh, it's just uh, it's it's kind of hard to explain, but it, it's it's weird. One of the things in ultra marathon running that people will always say is like they'll have a race and even if they have a bad race say like I'm never doing one of these again and then the next day they're on uh, on the internet looking for another race. So it's just this <laughs> weird thing about it that you don't really know until you do it, but it it sucks you in. <laughs> That's the case with a
0: lot of people when they talk about things that are like that they have to suffer through. Mm-hmm. You know, I've heard that when guys talk about like those extreme hikes, mm-hmm. you know, when they you know like they do that you know that one that goes from Georgia all the way to Maine? Do you know that ins- oh, insane yeah. hike? What is that called? The Appalachian, Appalachian Trail? The Appalachian Trail, yep. Yeah, that they say, I'll never fucking do that again. And then they're <laughs> like, okay, what other, what other hikes can I go? It's just once the pain, the physical pain, dies down, there's something about that challenge that stimulates in people like you and people that are into these really long distance things. Like there's something about distance. There's something about, like like you were saying, like, you weren't the best runner in high school or college, right? But there's mm-hmm. something about the mind of an ultra marathoner. It's a different mind. The person, the type of person that can run a hundred miles, two hundred miles, two hundred thirty-eight miles. Those type of people—they're different people. And there's like there's a strength, a mental strength, and the ability to just keep going on and on and on. That I'm absolutely fascinated with.
1: Yeah, you know, it is interesting too because it's uh, the sport's grown a bit, quite a bit in the last decade or so, but it's. Still very much kind of a niche group. And then when you kind of hang out in that group, you start to kind of normalize it a little bit, I think. So then you start thinking like, oh, 100 miles, it's just what we do. And then you, you, know, you actually try to like separate yourself from the fact that you've done a few of those or separate yourself from the fact that you've been hanging out with other people who are doing it. And you realize, oh, this is actually kind of a weird thing to kind of do as, <laughs> as a human nowadays. <laughs>
0: it's fucking very weird. <laughs> How many of these things have you won?
1: Uh, I don't know how many I've won. It's I think I've done just shy of 50 total now. Um, you know everything from 50 kilometers. The furthest I've done is 200 kilometers, which is about 125 miles. Um, yeah, I'd have to look to see how many I've won. It's 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 really goofy because when you start getting into the longer stuff, like 100 miles and beyond, you start at least in my training program, you start to kind of pick smaller races to kind of use as training runs. Um, and some of it I think is just because for me, if I'm going to go out and do like a 30 mile or a 40 mile training run or something like that, it's kind of tedious to do that by yourself and then plan all the logistics of it. So if there's a race nearby and that's not too hard to get to, it's easier just to sign up for that, go and do that. So some of those, you know, I'll, I'll win if they're, if they're small enough, even though I'm not necessarily trying to go for, you know, go all out, so to speak, cause I'm hoping to recover kind of, and, and get back into training. Um, so you'll
0: pace yourself at one of these local races, maybe?
1: Yeah. You know, the way I describe it is, um, and this is, this is a real hard thing for a lot of people to do, I think. It's uh, like you go into a race saying this is going to be a moderately difficult long run. Uh, so maybe a little faster than what I would do if I was just going to do it by myself, like unsupported, that sort of thing. And then I always tell myself 80% is the hardest you can go if you want to be able to come back and start training on time to meet the actual goal or the A race. Um, So when I do those, it's like, it's one of those things where like, you know, who knows, someone might show up that's, that's like as fast as you or maybe a little slower than you normal. And if they're deciding to just hammer it that day, they might beat you and you got to be okay with that. Um, Does
0: the competitive part of you flare up though? For sure.
1: Well, yeah, it does. And that's the hardest part. And that's, I think the main reason why some people won't do that approach Mm -hmm. because there's certainly people who just, they stay away from races unless it's their A race. And they just say, I'm, if I'm going to do a long run, I'll do it on my own and and, and, you know, not do that. Or, you know, there's certainly I'm sure folks who do it and then you know, they get caught up and then end up leaving their A race out on on the B race, I guess, so to speak. So, um, yeah, it, it's interesting. It's a it's kind of a, a sport that I think is still a lot to learn, which I think is actually the case for a lot of things that, you know, even, even things that are well established. You know, there's always something to learn or new things to pick up on.
0: Well, it's one of those things, right, where once, once someone runs 100 miles and then a bunch of other people start doing it, like you said, it, it almost becomes normalized. Mm-hmm. And then people start to try to push that boundary. Now, I've been hearing talk about uh, the woman Candace who runs the Moab 240. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, They're talking about doing a 500. <laughs> I heard yeah. that. I was like, you're, you're out of your fucking mind. People are going to die. The, but maybe that'll be normal in five years and we'll get used to like four or five day races.
1: Yeah. So, So it's really fascinating. It took me a couple of years to do this before I got into the sport. But once I was in it for a couple of years, I kind of did a little a little, a little, research to see like what the deal was with them, some of this stuff. And the, the funny thing is like that type of a distance isn't even unheard of. Uh, they actually, I forget what the book is called, but they actually had in Madison Square Garden, they used to host a six-day event where guys and gals, I, I'm not sure if gals were doing it back then, but um, guys for sure were going there and seeing how far they could run in six days and uh yeah i know crazy and uh i think if i remember right they would actually people were betting on them that way and so they'd fill it up like people would come oh, wow. and watch this like spectacle when, what year was this it was in the late 1800s i think is when they started it i'm not wow. sure when
0: wow it, here it is six day cycling the six-day grind at Madison Square up, Garden? Sure oh, wow. Look at this, man. So
1: some crazy person decided to leave the bike at home, I guess.
0: This is super old. <laughs> We're looking at this on YouTube, folks. It says six-day cycling, the six-day grind at Madison Square Garden. And so it's just a track, and these people are—this is old-timey <laughs> shit. These lo- this looks like the 30s, right? Yeah. That guy just went down. And so they're they're just riding their bike for six days. Oh shit, when they wipe out Oh my god. (laughs) They probably had terrible brakes back then, right? Yeah. It was their (laughs) feet. Probably, right? (laughs) Or the railing. Yeah. yeah, So So this is so endurance sports like this are nothing new.
1: Yeah, it's actually fascinating when you like kind of look into it because nowadays in the United States, the trail running scene is definitely way bigger than like the road running or certainly the track, the mm. track scene. But that wasn't always the case. If you look back into like the '70s and '80s, there was a pretty big surge in ultra marathon running. Uh, for flat fast stuff, that's where we see a lot of the the records coming from. Um,
0: so that's like a track, and you run as far and long as you can on a track, like track or a road or a really flat road. Like, I had Goggins on, David Goggins, oh, yeah. and mm-hmm. he was talking about uh, the first time he did one was on a track. Okay, just yeah. ran in circles on a track, which is almost got to be more taxing for your mind because you're just seeing the same shit over and over <laughs> and over again.
1: Yeah, it's it's really fascinating to me because I've done I've done both. I've done 100 milers on the trail and I've done 100 miles on a 400 meter track. And uh, the fascinating thing is it is like what you said. It's almost a different event where mentally you're doing everything you can on that track to kind of separate yourself from the actual environment. and Envision yourself being somewhere else, you know, looking forward to little things to kind of not necessarily be thinking too far in advance because that can get overwhelming whereas when I'm out on the trails it's like you're usually in a pretty pristine beautiful area and you can kind of just take it as it comes and say oh cool now I get to see that or this is a neat area or I like this section and you look you look forward to that kind of diversity whereas on the track it's you know you see it once and you've seen it every time um and then it you know it just kind of beats you up mentally from that side of things um but then you know there's other things about that too that that help out like logistically when you're on a track for 400 meters you bring out one person you put everything you may possibly want on a little table and mm. if I want something I say hey can I get that 400 meters later I have it and even, right. even if we mess it up I'll get it 400 meters after that so <laughs> <laughs> yeah where, whereas you know the trails it depends they've gotten a lot better with aid stations as the sport's grown um, but like you know you mess up your aid station or if you get caught up in the moment and just blow through it and don't take care of yourself you might have to suffer for an hour plus before you get help again so that's where it kind of gets a little different, I think, logistically when you're on the trails versus, versus on the road. And, um, but, but, yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a different thing. It, the track is interesting, too, in the sense that you're essentially making that same exact motion, exact motion the whole way. So, like, there's certain areas of your body that fatigue. Um, and they don't get a break, the turn (laughs) turn and just running flat, like running flat, you're going to kind of localize some of the way you stimulate your muscles or your gait is going to be pretty similar throughout. Whereas when you're on the trails, like you might be going on a slight incline, a steep incline, a slight decline, a little bit of flat, some rolling, all kinds of things Mm -hmm. in between. And then trails can be kind of undulating. So you're just kind of moving all that forces around your legs a little more than you would be when you're running on a flat surface. So, you know, it's one of the things that I always tell like my coaching clients and and myself when I'm planning for something is like if you really want to meet your full potential like specificity is king you need to be on that environment in the environment you're going to race on and really get your body used to kind of that type of a motion. and um, it makes it a little more interesting when you're doing a track race because that means some kind of long runs on a track so um, you're kind of balancing doing just enough to get ready for it and not doing too much so that when you get to the race you're like screw this I've done too much of this already I don't want to see another loop. yeah, it's kind of a, an interesting
0: concept. It's, it's interesting to me too, that you're, if you're planning to run a hundred miles, like what you were saying about running these shorter races as a training run, Mm -hmm. which makes sense because how else are you going to prepare for a hundred miles? Like if you just decided to just go out and run a hundred miles, you'd have to like map it out. Like how far Mm -hmm. is a hundred miles? Where am I going to park? Like, where am I going to put water?
1: And yeah. And then people also kind of get Uh, Like forget about the aspect of just all the stuff surrounding the race that you can kind of fine tune when you're doing a race as a kind of training run where like, you know, usually you're going to travel a little bit for stuff like this. Um, So you're probably going to stay in a hotel the night before you're going to, you have to wake up early in the morning. You have to get your, your, your gear ready. And so it's kind of like going through that um, process of what you're gonna have to do on race day. So then when your big race comes up, you're like, okay, I've done this three or four times in the last six months. So I know what I'm doing.
0: Now, what's different between you and a lot of guys, and this is one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you about this, is that you you are on a fat-burning diet. You're essentially you're on a ketogenic diet mm-hmm. and running these races.
1: Yeah, you know, it's, it's a little interesting because the way I kind of well, – at least the way I came into it, like, I explored the ketogenic diet mainly because I started noticing some things. Try to pull this thing. Oh, like, sorry.
0: It's, no worries about it.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I, I started um, – kind of exploring the ketogenic diet back in late 2011 because I started noticing some some goofy things going on with my body from from the from the high level of training and then and then the racing and um, that was right around that same time I did those 350 milers in in would you notice Uh, I would wake up like three or four times at night and then like I'd have to like pee all the time at night and I'd have like swelling in my ankles and stuff a lot of just like huge energy swings throughout the day like I would yeah, I was I was a teacher at the time. So I remember thinking like every day at like 1 or 2 o'clock I could have laid down and taken a nap on spot if I had had the opportunity to. So it was just like a lot of weird things that I thought was pretty abnormal for a 25-year-old male at the time. And, um and so it was kind of becoming clear to me that what I was doing was either unsustainable or the way I was doing it was unsustainable. And, you know, I was really intrigued by the sport and I didn't really want to necessarily back off of that if I didn't have to. So that's when I kind of started to explore nutrition and diet and things like that. And um, it, I, I was very much following what I would have considered a healthy diet before that at the time. It was it was high carbohydrate, but it was like what you would you know think of as a healthy high carbohydrate diet with like, like
0: what was a normal meal.
1: Um, You know, I'd wake up and I'd I'd usually go for a run and then have like some oatmeal, raisins, maybe some fruit or something like that, some some eggs or something with, with that in the morning. So not junk food, just no, like it was No, it was like clean. Like, you know, you know what you say, they say like get your whole grains, fruits, vegetables, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. I definitely, you know, focused heavily on that and made sure I wasn't eating like junk junk food. I wasn't going through fast food restaurants or eating Oreos and bonbons and that sort of thing. Right. So, um, so it was kind of interesting to me to think like, okay, I, I didn't really realize that it was necessarily... The nutritional side of things like it wasn't it wasn't like a big slap in the face in the sense that oh i just got to cut out the junk because like according to most people i wasn't eating junk i was eating really good food um so you know that's when i kind of got introduced to some folks like uh dr volick and dr finney who are kind of i guess i guess the pioneers of like the this latest wave of kind of the high fat approach And, um, you know, they were I started reading their books, listening to podcasts and things like that. And and, you know, it was interesting because I I was I was training upwards of 20 hours a week at the time. And, you know, I started kind of thinking, like, uh, how much time am I going to invest in in just running? You know, how can I kind of kill two birds with one stone? And and that's kind of when I discovered podcasts and thought, this is sweet. I can learn something and train at the same time. Um, And so I just kind of like went all in on listening to a bunch of, you know, podcasts and stuff like that. And um, actually, one of your previous guests, uh, Ben Greenfield, was one of the first podcasts I really kind of did a deep dive into. And he was always kind of like rolling out stuff that was like kind of new or cutting edge. So like, um, he definitely had a lot of information there. And uh, i was yeah, for, he's a
0: maniac yeah <laughs> don't take his advice on what he does with his dick yeah <laughs> he's shooting stem cells into his dick and all. yeah
1: that. he's turning himself into a guinea pig yeah, but
0: he's, he's an odd duck <laughs> <laughs>
1: but yeah he he definitely had a lot of info from mm-hmm. guys like dr finney and dr volick and uh you know I, I was lucky to meet those guys too on a couple occasions and um with, with dr volick i've done some podcasts with him and certainly inter, like exchanged emails and stuff when i've had questions and uh, so, I kind of just tested it out you know I was like what 's the worst that can happen? I can just I can always go back you know like, right. it 's not like I have to stick to this for the rest of my life if it's not so something
0: Your issues were swelling and energy and and why did you attribute that to your diet? Like, what was making you think that it was your diet that was doing that to you?
1: Yeah, so, you know, I wasn't sure. I thought I thought for sure that something I was doing was wrong. And did you get
0: your blood work done, check your hormone levels, all that stuff?
1: Yeah, you know, I didn't have probably as much blood work done as I would have liked to, to really, like, look at stuff and, and see. Like, the way I look at blood work is if you're doing it regular, like, often enough and not changing things, that's when you're going to see the most because you're going to see changes versus just like, oh, I'm – chronically low in this or right. i'm always low in this but it doesn't seem to be an issue uh but you know there was no big red flags on my blood work like nothing that would have said said like
0: thyroid disease
1: right or yeah nothing lines, nothing, right. nothing quite that wrong and you know it wasn't like the wheels were coming off at that point there were these were small things that i kind of associated as like nagging things they they were like things i could get through um but they weren't ideal so you know i'm i've kind of been a curious person like my whole life so i was i'm i'm was just looking to kind of optimize i guess more or less and and i didn't know if it was gonna work i i was was terrified that i'd find out it wasn't and then i would have to stop running as much right and at the time i was like that doesn't sound like what i want to do so um this was just something i decided to explore first um and it's it's really goofy because like i've certainly evolved in kind of how i use it from that when i first started when i when i first started i went like really kind of really low carb, like that clinical ketosis level where you read about where they're like 50 grams of carbohydrates or less. And, you know, I did that for about, I think it was like four to six weeks. And um, I didn't have as hard of a time as what I think I've, I've, I've seen some people have with it. You know, you have people talking about everything from like the keto flu to just like feeling really lethargic for a while before mm-hmm. that kind of metabolic switch flips. Um, what I kind of noticed was um, I felt really good doing like really like low level type mundane tasks, just like day-to-day work and things like that, but like maybe every second or third day I'd go out for a run and just feel awful. And um I kind of knew enough about it that I thought, okay, give, let's give this a solid 4 weeks before I make any judgments on whether that's going to be something that sticks around or not. And you know, after about that point my energy levels kind of normalized. Um and then, you know, I was – so at that point, I was, like, excited. I was, like, this is sweet. I'm, and, and, well, I should have mentioned, too, like, during that process, I started sleeping through the night again, which was, like, kind of really an eye-opening thing for me um, because usually, like, I'd wake up at least three times.
0: What do you attribute that to?
1: Um, you know, I, I don't know for sure, but, uh, you know, it could be anything from just the amount of stress I was causing on my body from kind of two angles from the training plus, like, you know – like I don't want to demonize carbohydrates because I think they have a place I think they're a great tool I just think like the the question everyone should ask is at what level do they become kind of a margin of diminishing returns for you and you know what I think was likely happening is that you know I was reaching past that margin of diminishing returns and um it was causing more stress than what my body was was able to tolerate and that was causing cortisol spikes or something like that That was waking me up at night Mm -hmm. um but you know who knows really like it's uh it all i know is the only thing at that time i changed was my diet and And
0: we should probably point out that this is not universal that everybody's diet is going to affect them differently some people are fine with carbohydrates there's a lot of people Mm -hmm. out there that eat a high carbohydrate diet and they have zero issues with it whatsoever Mm -hmm. and it's that's one of the weirder things about people you yeah. know, it's it, that we are so variable depending mm-hmm. upon your ancestry, you know, what part of the world they, they evolved.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fascinating to me because, I mean, I'll look at folks doing the complete opposite of who I am and they're, they're doing just fine. Yeah. Um, and it's, you know, then I'll look at some folks, too, that are doing the opposite of me and they're doing just fine for a while. And then they ultimately start noticing the same kind of things I did and then they can clean it up. Uh, so it is kind of, yeah, I think at the end of the day, you just got to be kind of honest with yourself. And, you know, some people I think are really really robust (laughs) and they can they can hit their body with that high octane fuel carbohydrate like day in and day out at a high level and it doesn't seem to bother them much but Mm. you know other people i think just that it can kind of it's like playing with rocket fuel a little bit where you know a little bit can be great and too much of it can kind of burn you up a little bit
0: so you're saying that you started off at like 50 grams of carbohydrates a day the real strict ketosis diet Mm -hmm. What what did you eventually move to
1: um, it, so the way I call it is I periodize it. So like when I look at my year, you're, you can pick out a week where I'm kind of in peak training and then pick out a week where I'm kind of in like a recovery phase or off season. And it looks like two completely different lifestyles. So my first thought after kind of like working through the whole ketogenic approach, um, cause I should add to like. Um, once I got like feeling good about that, I started adding back speed workouts and things like that. And I definitely noticed that I was missing kind of that last gear. Like mm. it, it was a lot more difficult to go out and really throttle down. Like I could run all day at a slow pace. But if I decided to go out on the track and do like 400 meter repeats at like a really fast, like a really fast pace, um, it was really hard to kind of. To be able to do that,
0: that's a common complaint. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rob Wolf, you know Rob Wolf? Yep. Mm-hmm. Rob Wolf had a similar issue. He's gotten like very heavily into jujitsu, and he was telling me that he just can't stick to that 50 grams of carbohydrates a day yeah. and still have the, the energy to go hard.
1: Mm-hmm. Does, does, do you know, does Rob Wolf work out more than one time a day?
0: I do not know. Um, he looks very fit, though. I'm, okay. I'm not sure what his uh, what his schedule is, but I know he works out very hard. And if he's doing jiu this really it's very difficult to do jiu-jitsu any other way than hard.
1: Sure. Yeah. You know, this is one thing I've always been curious about too. And you know, I, I'm not I'm not trying to come come on here and say like everyone should switch to doing what I do. I mean, I think you should follow your own your own your own personal self. And if be honest with yourself, if you feel great, do what you're doing. If you don't, then probably look to change something. But, like, one thing I'm always looking at now or suspecting is that, like, it's more about the recovery between efforts than it is about the intensity of the effort or the duration of the effort in terms of how much carbs you need to bring back or want to bring back. Because I've also had circumstances where, like, I'll do, like, a big workout or a race or something like that, and then I'll go really easy for, like, a week. And during that week, I'll go, like, super strict keto. Because um, I'm recovering, I'm not doing anything intense. I'm not doing anything too long, um, so that's that's the point of my training where I kind of say, "All right, let's get rid of the start, the fast-acting fuel sources. I don't need them right now, and reset that whole fat adaptation thing." Um, so you
0: feel like you, the fast-acting fuel sources like carbohydrates, you only really need them when you're pushing hard, right? When you're really running fast.
1: Yeah, and I actually think it's it's when you're doubling down on those on a regular basis. So like if you're working out really hard for like 45 minutes to an hour a day, I think you can probably get away with almost a ketogenic or like a really low carbohydrate approach because you're giving yourself like 23 plus hours between sessions for your body to kind of restock glycogen stores from other areas like, you know, from fat and proteins and things like that. I think when you start getting into a system where you're like myself, I'm doing two days a lot and then sometimes one of those is a speed session that's when I feel like I need to bring some of the carbohydrate back. And I think it's probably just to get some of the glycogen at a little faster rate because that is going to replenish your glycogen stores faster as a carbohydrate than like a fat or or a protein probably would.
0: So how many grams of carbohydrates a day would you have on a day like that?
1: Um, When I'm in like peak training, which is about 20 hours a week of running strength training and mobility type stuff, you know, I'll probably let myself get up to like – 15 to 25 percent of my intake from carbohydrate um what do you you think
0: that is in grams
1: uh it probably it depends a lot on like what i actually do um because i don't count calories very often i i used to just to kind of like see what was going on and then i kind of got intuitive with it uh gram wise you know it's probably anywhere from like two to three hundred maybe and then when i'm in those phases of training it's really intense in terms of like just uh, or I shouldn't say intense. It's just really tedious in the amount of time and energy required for it.
0: Now, are you blood monitoring at that time? Are you checking your m- millimolar levels?
1: Uh, I am sometimes, like when, I'm, like when I get curious about that type of stuff, or I've done it in the past. I've actually, what I did originally is I got the the blood ketone monitor, and I also got one of those ketonics. Uh, like it, it's like this little USB thing, and then you blow into it. and Yeah. It,
0: How is that accurate? I think
1: there's I think there's varied results. I think they've gotten a lot better with it. Um, But what I did is I actually measured my blood ketone and then I would use that. And I tried to find kind of like if mine was matching what that thing would say. Mm -hmm. So I kind of had and I I got it to where I kind of had an idea where certain ranges on that thing would kind of indicate whether I was in ketosis or not. Um, So like I very much is coming out of ketosis during peak training. Like when I would, especially when I would get up to two, 300 grams of carbohydrate, I would come out of ketosis uh, and I'd probably go back into ketosis throughout that, that, that phase. Um, when you
0: say go back in and come out, uh, like what kind of a time period are you talking about?
1: Uh, it, the time period was more indicative about what I kind of ate during it too. Like if I did, if 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 i did or i shouldn't say what i like how i kind of structured those 2 to 300 grams of carbohydrate like if i did like a big bolus of it in one meal i'd get back into ketosis a little quicker because then i wouldn't come back to the carbohydrates again for so a while so would you
0: vary in inside the day
1: yeah Mm-hmm. yeah like I would st- like if i and, and here's where it got kind of interesting I guess is I do a lot of my the heaviest bulk of my training in the morning, so I typically wake up and have some like coffee with like coconut milk or heavy whipping cream or something like that, and then uh, you know go for my run so then when I get back from a run you know it might be two hours sometimes even three, and uh, you know at that point I had just slept for eight to ten hours then you know by the time I got done with my run you know i hadn't I had hadn't. I essentially done, like, a small intermittent fast for the most part. Um, so, like, even when I had the higher amounts of carbohydrates, I'd find myself going back into ketosis at the end of something like that sometimes. Um, but really, it was, to me, it wasn't necessarily a question of whether I was in ketosis or not because that really wasn't important to me. Um, like,
0: Performance is important.
1: Perfor- exactly, yeah. And what I wanted out of this approach was um, I wanted to be able to rely on my body to to burn high levels of fat when I needed it to, but I also wanted to be metabolically flexible enough where if I needed to hit the gas pedal, I could do that as well. Um, And I think that's where people get a little uh, uh, confused or up in arms or something because there's not a whole lot of studies that kind of look at that specifically, like can you do that or can you not do that? Some people think it's kind of an all or nothing thing where you either get really fat adapted or you get really carb dependent. And then everything else is kind of like, you know, this gray area that you can't really get into. But that's not my experience. You know, my experience has been that like I can get Look, here. Here's my kind of litmus test. If I can go out for like a four hour or even five hour run with no fuel other than water and electrolytes then I'm fat adapted enough. I don't need to get any more fat adapted than that because I can't eat during a race and everyone else is going to be. So like, I don't really need to get more fat adapted that from a f- performance standpoint. Um, so when I get to that point, then it's like, how many, how many carbohydrates can I bring back to kind of give me that extra nudge or that extra fuel substrate? Um, and, Have you
0: ever tried mixing exogenous ketones with carbohydrates? Um because Not Greenfield carb- was talking about that, and he yeah. said it's like doing steroids. He <laughs> said it was incredible. Yeah, but again, he's
1: he's a maniac. He's a maniac. Yeah, yeah. there's a who else was it? Was it Dominic Diagostino was playing around with that stuff quite a bit too? Or he might have helped. Uh, he might have helped uh, with the the creation of some of that stuff. I know there was. Uh, I'd have to look back in my emails and stuff, but I, I actually had uh, there was a guy who was doing a real clinical version of the exogenous ketones and um he had sent me one a while back to kind of do a little test for him and uh it it was like just this little canister of exogenous ketone and he wanted me to kind of check my ketones when i woke up in the morning take that test it 15 minutes later and
0: then test again after my run was that like a ketone ester yeah i think so like super potent stuff tastes yep. like godzilla's dick <laughs> Yeah, Matt Brown brought some of that in. It's like, woof. Yeah. Did you test
1: your ketones when you took it? No,
0: I didn't. I didn't have a monitor on me, but it tasted terrible, but I felt great. Yeah. After it was over. And you have to take it with uh, glucose.
1: Yeah. Yeah. See, I think that's – maybe that's where I messed up, but – besides that, like my ketone level shot up. I woke up that morning. I think I was at like 1.0 millimoles or something like that. I took that exogenous ketone. um, And 15 minutes later, I test, I was at 3.7 millimoles. Wow. So it was like, okay, stuff works. Yeah, it works. (laughs) But I don't know. Here's what I, here's my question is with that stuff from a performance standpoint is like, it's, people are looking at that kind of, I think more like an electrolyte where it's like, I take this on top of my energy source Um, whereas that's actually an energy source, a fairly potent one too. Mm -hmm. So like when I'm out there racing and I'm trying to kind of limit and I'm trying to eat a a certain amount so that I kind of keep that energy where I want it, but I'm also trying not to go overboard because I don't want digestive stress. Um,
0: that's interesting. So like, as you're running, you have to maintain like a certain amount of food in your system but you don't want to have a large meal.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Cause like basically the way I simply to simply put it, like digestion requires blood volume, you know, to move into your gut and like digest the food. So when you're running, especially when it's hot, your body's also trying to use your, your blood volume for muscle function and cooling and things like that. So by kind of introducing another use for that blood volume, your body's probably is, is running out of resources to kind of make all those things run smoothly. Um, which is why a lot of times in ultra marathons, people find out like they have the worst luck with like throwing up and stomach issues when it gets really hot out, because their body's got to go double down on the cooling side of things with the blood volume, and then it's like, well, something's got to give, so it just pukes up everything you put in your stomach. Oh wow! Um, yeah. So you know, is there
0: a way to mitigate that?
1: Uh, eat less. That's
0: it. <laughs> just so when you, if you're running, like, what's a size portion? Like, what do you, what would you eat? say if you're doing a hundred miler? Yeah. and you have to pause for fuel. Um, you know, I'll I'll typically
1: aim for around 100 to 200 calories an hour when I'm doing a doing 100 miler. And to kind of put that in perspective, when I was uh, high carb, I was aiming for three, four and sometimes even 500 calories an hour. So when I kind of went into the approach where fat was my primary fuel source, the the need for that carbohydrate essentially got cut in half, if not more. And for me, that's a win as long as energy levels are the same because it means I have to eat less during the race. If I have right. to, it's one less logistic thing, one less potential stomach issue. Um, so what, what's a, a typical meal? A typical meal like – While a, you're running. Oh, while I'm running? Uh, you know, I usually stick to like, uh, um, uh, like water-based stuff. So like I'll use a product called um, X Endurance Fuel 5, and it's essentially like a really, really high-level sports drink um, with like a varying, it's got, it's, it's carbohydrate based and I can tell you why I use carbohydrates instead of fats during a race in a minute too, if you want. Um, but it's like five different types of kind of carbohydrate that release at varying points. So you get some, that's kind of a little quick jolt and others that are more sustained, like kind of like a sweet potato type of a release. Um, so I'll be just trickling that in. So like, if I'm doing like a hundred miler and let's say I'm, I'm aiming for like 30 to 40 ounces of water, Uh, per hour to kind of stay on top of hydration i'll put um you know two like 100 to 200 calories with that stuff in that water so then i'm kind of killing two birds with one stone and getting my fuel in as well as hydrating at the same time
0: so what and why are you taking carbohydrates while you're running instead of fats
1: yeah so that's that's the other thing like and and i see this as as somewhat of a i don't know if it's an issue necessarily but it's an interesting thing for at at the very least is when you when i talk to folks who are like really into the high fat approach, you know, some of them are like zero carb or like really ketogenic all the time, 24 seven, uh, they'll be taking in like fat sources during a race. And I've never understood that. Um, just because when you look at your body's energy systems during a race, like you have your glycogen stores and then you have body fat And I think a lot of people kind of get misled and they think, oh, I'm a really lean runner, so I can't rely on body fat. When in reality, even the leanest endurance athletes have enough body fat to get through an endurance race. Like even if you're 4%, 5% body fat at at your leanest, that's a much bigger fuel source than your glycogen reserves. So when I'm doing a race, I've got enough fat to take care of the fat metabolizing portion of that energy uh, requirement for the race. What I might run out of is those glycogen stores, which are really small in comparison. So I'm trying to just slowly trickle in the, the, the sugar or the carbohydrate during a race, um, just enough to kind of keep my glycogen stores where I want to be so I can hit the gas if I need to, um, but not at the level where it's going to cause stomach distress or compromise or heavily compromise my body's like, willingness or ability to burn fat either.
0: That's fascinating. So like as you're running – your body could switch back and forth between fats and carbohydrates because you're so fat adapted.
1: Yeah, and I you know, it's actually probably happening like simultaneously. It's just mm. at different rates. Like it, like someone who's really fat adapted, they could be running kind of the same effort and the fat adapted person might be like burning 80% fat, 20% carbohydrate and the carb dependent person might be like a 50/50 split. Mm. So that carb-dependent person is going to exhaust their glycogen stores a lot quicker, or they're going to have to fuel themselves at a much higher rate to make up for that deficit. And um, when you look at like how difficult that is, because you know some of these, especially some of these mountain races where you're running uphill, it's like you you might be burning 800 plus calories an hour, and it's yeah, that's a different really animal, right? Yeah, uh huh, yeah, and it's really hard to replace that on the fly.
0: Yeah, those running uphill ones, I would I would mm-hmm. think that's a much more difficult race.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's a different setup. It's, you know, it's one of those things where I'm pretty new to that, actually. Like um, most of my ultra running career, I focus more on flat stuff. And part of that, just because I've lived in a lot of flat areas. And like I was kind of saying earlier, if you really want to nail a race, you have to be specific. So I learned kind of early, probably around like 2013 or so, that it was in my best interest to make my peak races flat ones if I really wanted to meet my full potential. Um, now I live in Phoenix, so I've got a lot more access to mountains. Yeah, I can get on the trails and, the, and do some significant climbing right out my back door. So um, I've certainly been able to practice that more. And as I've gotten more competent at it, I do recognize like, oh, it's not quite as hard as I thought it was originally because I was going into it essentially undertrained. Mm. Whereas now it's like I go into it, I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm more adjusted to this. So, I mean, it's still hard. Like going uphill is hard no matter how you skin it, but it's like... It's one of those things where if you kind of figure out the pace, it shouldn't be any more hard. Like, f- it should be just as hard to run flat because you're going to have to run faster. Right. Um, and it's just, then it just comes down to, I think, the right training and, you know, pacing everything
0: right. It's interesting, you're saying you're living in Phoenix. Do you run the summer in Phoenix? Because Phoenix is fucking insanely hot. <laughs> so I, I moved there in January. So <laughs> <laughs> good move. <Yeah. laughs> Big yeah. wake up call. Come June, I, <laughs> you're like, whoa. <laughs> yeah,
1: it'll be it'll be warm. Um, I actually kind of like it because right now I'm I'm training for the Western States 100, and that's in it starts in Squaw Valley and ends in Auburn, California, uh, and they go through like these four canyons that get can get brutally hot, like 110 plus some years, um, and do you, like, you
0: run with like a vest where you have water bottles attached to you or anything
1: yep mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. The, the, that stuff has come such a long way since i started the sport i remember when i first started it was pretty primitive type stuff and now the the sport is i think through hiking plays a big role in this too it has gotten like so popular or popular enough where now companies are really t- dialing that stuff in where you can get like a pack um, that just sits nice and snug on you and you can put water like i use I, I use a brand called nathan they have like ones that have bladders on the back where they also have ones where you can put water bottles on the front um and then just you know different setups and stuff so so yeah th- that's like a must <laughs> in, yeah, a, in I mean, the heat because
0: even in early mornings it's got to be mm-hmm. brutal in phoenix right
1: yeah uh, i mean i mean i have yet to see the worst of it why'd uh, you move there uh well part of it was um i want to w- carry a gun well, <laughs> I'm looking into crazy laws. For that. Well, I moved from Sacramento. So let's say I'm looking into that now, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's, um, it, it was, it was a combination of things for me. Like, uh, I'm trying to kind of balance a few different things. I, 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 train a lot. I also work for one of my primary sponsors, ultra footwear. Uh, and like for me to be able to kind of do this stuff for them that I was wanting to do, it made more sense to be in Phoenix. Just like
0: product testing and stuff like that.
1: Yeah. That, and just like putting on like, like small group runs and events and things like that in the area. Uh, like if I wanted to invest or if I wanted to kind of appropriately handle the territory, Phoenix made a lot more sense than Sacramento, Northern California has just grown so much for that company in the last couple of years that like they needed to get someone in there who was going to do full time plus to really cover the area. Um, and then I, you know, I also got engaged in, in January as well. So uh, um, my fiance, she, she was best served being in the Phoenix area too. So mm-hmm. it was kind of a mutual uh, – she was from Dallas originally. And um, Phoenix was kind of like a, a mutually good spot for both of us. So uh, um, we, we both kind of looked at it as like, well, what do we want? And it was we want trails right in our backyard, but we also want access to flat stuff and we we actually kind of want the heat because it, like there 's races where you need that to train for, so when it gets hot earlier, you can prepare for them uh, much what a crazy year.
0: reason to move to <laughs> phoenix i 'm I'm, I'm enjoying the heat for training <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> well i 'm not even the craziest one in the house my My fiance is a savage she uh, <laughs> yeah, her name is Nicole Caldroou she like you know how like i thought i 've always thought i 'm a hard worker and someone who like puts a lot of time and effort into the things I do and then I met her and uh, you know, I like to. Uh, she's she's cut from the jocko cloth. Let's put it that way. <laughs> mm. Nice. So yeah, yeah. She'll do like she she works for a company called Towers Watson, um, and, uh, kind of does a uh, manages the Midwest division for like stuff. So she'll be on like a conference call with Amazon, and then, you know, go out and run three hours after that, and then come back and get on another conference call, and just keeps going and going and going. Wow. So yeah, it's a uh, you know it 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 was it made sense for her job and my job to kind of be in Phoenix. And with as busy as she is and as busy as I can get from time to time, like, it's nice to be able to go out your backyard and be on the trail five minutes later. Whereas both of us didn't have that before. We both had to drive to get to any kind of trail, especially her. Dallas, it was a lot of just, like, flat road running yeah. in her area. So um, Dallas yeah,
0: doesn't have hardly any hills. Right?
1: No, no. Well, and that's, that's, that's what is impressive with, like, so she's done Western States a few times, the race I was telling her before with the canyons. And um, she's been sixth place there twice, just training on flat roads, basically. That's (laughs)
0: crazy. Does she do anything to augment that, like doing lunges or anything like that?
1: Uh, She does uh, some strength work and stuff. But really, you know, a lot of it was just, you know, she would go out and run and run a lot. And then I'm sure, like, she hasn't met her full potential at that specific event or certainly, like, mountain-type races just because...
0: She wasn't training in mountains, right?
1: Right, yeah. And she's she's good though. So like, I mean, she was a division one recruit for college and stuff back in the day. So like, you know, she's got some running talent, no doubt. Um, and then she puts in the work cause consistency is a huge thing. Like if you can't find the specific stuff and you're really geeked about a specific race, like I don't think not having the right training environment is reason to not do it if you're excited to do it. Um, so like for her, she was more excited to get out on the trails than she was to go, you know, do something on a track or a flat road like I was. So, um, for her, it was like, even if I'm not, quite where i would like to be i'm going to do it anyway
0: now i'm not familiar with ultra footwear but what i wanted to ask you is does anybody wear like minimalist shoes and run these ultra marathons
1: yeah Mm -hmm. yeah there was a there was actually a gal i cannot remember her name this is a couple years ago who ran ultras in um those vibrant five fingers really yeah yeah and the trail stuff too so um, you know, she must have been a beast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's hard I,
0: to run just a couple of miles in those things. Yeah,
1: and it's you know it's interesting because so ultra footwear made this shoe this last year called uh, the the vanish and it's essentially a minimalist shoe, um, just like a little bit of fabric on the top, super super hard flat base, and that's kind of what I like when I'm on a road or a track. Um, so I was wearing it's called the, the vanish, the vanish. Yeah, Can you
0: pull that up. Let me see what that looks like.
1: And it's a uh, so I went to this 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 ultra race and I wore those thinking I'm gonna have the lightest shoe out of anyone here. Three guys show up running completely barefoot. What? <laughs> yeah,
0: they ran an ultra marathon barefoot. Yeah, yeah, dude, that's
1: another level. Yeah, there was one there was one guy who Jesus Christ, he's like a two twenty two or two twenty three marathoner and he's barefoot and he said like the, he right,
0: runs a marathon barefoot so
1: he doesn't do the marathon barefoot he actually said that uh the, so that's
0: a little bit of padding in that it looks like or unless there's a lip on the outside is that the vanish or is that the? Is that it, the it says vanish okay or? Yeah, yeah yeah
1: yeah yeah so i mean there's there's a little bit there's like a there's like a carbon fiber plate and you see where that little cut mm-hmm. is in there there's like right. a carbon fiber plate in there that makes it a little more firm oh, I see. so what i'm looking for in a shoe and i'm looking for kind of like that natural feel is something that's got a firm midsole or a firm durometer because like, I don't want to squish down into the shoe. I want to pop right off the ground. Um, And I think like, really like that is just, I mean, you've probably experienced this with the, with the Vibrams where like um, if you spend the time, your foot feet get stronger and stronger and stronger. And it's only a matter of time before they get strong. If you just got to keep kind of working at it, just like, you know, a, a, a weightlifter, you know, when they start out weightlifting, They're nowhere near where they are 10 years later. Mm -hmm. Um, So, like, for me, back in 2012, I think, I kind of, like, you know, I read Born to Run. Have you heard Mm -hmm. of that book?
0: Yeah, I've heard it's amazing.
1: Yeah, you know, I I, I read that, and I was like, this is intriguing, you know, and it made a lot of sense, too. It's like, you know, if we were meant to have a wedge on our heel, like— we would have had a wedge on our heel. <laughs> yeah.
0: No, that's that's a ridiculous thing that Nike came up with. And yeah. it's really unfortunate that so many people have adopted that and they run heel first like that.
1: Yeah, well, and, and the problem, I think, too, is that, like... The, a shoe is essentially a cast for your foot. Even, yeah. even that Vanish that I had up there, that's a little cast compared to what you're normally going to see, but it's still a cast.
0: That's why I like those five fingers mm-hmm. because there's nothing. There's just a yeah. very, very flexible a piece of rubber underneath and mm-hmm. it's a glove for your for your feet.
1: Yeah, yeah. And you know, people just don't know that I think that you can really work those foot muscles to a point where you can exhaust them the way you would in a shoe. Um, it just takes a lot of time because like, if I broke my arm and put a cast on it, and then, like, six, eight weeks later, got the cast taken off. I went back in the weight room and did a normal routine. I would be wrecked the next mm-hmm. day. Yeah. So when you take your foot out of that shoe cast you have it in or take it out of the position it's gotten used to yeah. and put it in a different position, it's like taking a cast off and trying to do that full mode of mode of uh, training or motion. So, like, you know, I, when I first kind of got into ultra running, I, I, I worked my way down to a minimalist shoe. I spent probably six months before I was running exclusively in something that was um, really l- minimalist. And when I say minimalist, I mean zero drop and no cushion or little to no cushion. Because I think some people confuse that too. Like that the, the shoe you saw up there, because you're like, oh, it looks like it's got a little bit of padding there. Mm-hmm. So that's like zero drop with cushioning. Right. Or that shoe really doesn't have a lot of cushioning. But um, there are shoes that Ultra makes it does. And what that does is it takes you from like, the way I describe is this is someone in like a... Um, someone in a traditional running shoe, real built up cushion, a lot of support is on one end of the spectrum, barefoot runner, like those dudes that I ran into at the track. Um, they're on the other end of the spectrum. There's all these steps in between to get to that. Mm. So like, I
0: can't believe people run ultras barefoot.
1: Yeah, it's crazy. I don't think there's too many people. Look at this doing
0: fucking <laughs> savage.
1: <laughs> Look
0: at this dude. Barefoot Ted. Does oh yeah. Sense? Barefoot so, Ted. Yeah. Hard Ted. He also uses this. The sandal. <clears> yeah. <throat> mm hmm. Runs in a sandal. Yeah. Mm, well, that, it wasn't that in the Born to One that yep. these guys had made sandals out of tires. Yeah, uh huh. Yeah, I, I've been using something called a see, pull up. This Vivo Vivo Barefoot. I've been using these. Um, what I like about these is that I don't have to look where I step. There's no cushioning at all. The trail one. I'd use that one. On the far left. The far left. Yeah, that one. Um, there's no cushion to it, uh-huh. but it's got some tread and the bottom is hard enough so that I can run on hard rocks and that I don't think about sure. it. It's hard to tell in that image how little there is underneath it, but there's uh there's nothing going on in, in terms of like there's no squish to it at all. There's sure. just some good-sized knobs so you have uh some good um some good tread, you know, so you can, you know, you can get Good traction and, and dirt and mud and stuff like that. But yeah, that, they weigh nothing. That's yeah, and yeah, you can so crumble the, that thing up. So your yeah. foot
1: muscles are flexing every which way they want. Yeah, that's yeah. cool. I, yeah, I,
0: it's made a big difference with me, man. But honestly, the five fingers are probably the best for that. They just don't have as much traction, and I have to look where I'm stepping. Mm-hmm. You know, like I have to be careful, like sharp rocks and yeah. stuff. I have to look down. Don't step on that one. Look out. I don't like looking. I'd right, rather yeah. just run. Just, and with those, I can just run.
1: Just flow through it. Yeah, I can
0: get a p- faster pace with those.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's 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 where I kind of draw the line too. Is like when I'm on the roads and on the track, I don't mind having that like no cushion type of thing. But then when I go on like the trails in Phoenix, it's very rocky, yeah. and hard. And then I'll use like a shoe called the King MT. That's kind of like the one you had there it's a little less nimble, I would say than that one, but it's got that that like really aggressive lug it's got the foot shaped toe box, so I don't feel like my feet are getting pinched together
0: what what do you think barefoot ted does on like on those, the trails those trails uh, I think he probably wears those sandals oh probably <laughs> right, yeah, just yeah. something where uh-huh. he's got just something that keeps him from getting cut. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But
1: yeah. there are guys who just do that barefoot, too. Fucking a, animals. I think they are
0: very few, but it's, it's, it's doable. Have you ever seen that show, Dual Survivor? It's one of those wacky Survivor shows. Uh, I don't know if I've seen that one. Well, this one guy, I think his name's Corey... Who has the most disgusting feet I've ever seen in my life? Almost as disgusting as that one guy was cutting the p- the bottom of his feet off and feeding it to dogs. Remember that guy with a knife? Yeah, that video is awful to watch. But uh, this guy walks barefoot everywhere, and his uh-huh. idea is like, you got to toughen your feet up because yeah. you might not have shoes. You know, they they get real crazy with this whole survivalist thing. Yeah. So this guy is basically has. I'm not joking, like a good solid half inch of callus under his entire foot. It's amazing what the human body will do when you put it in a position to need to. Yeah, (laughs) when it has to adapt. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by guys like you, these ultra runners, is because for the average person, that's an impossible feat. But you've built... There's that guy's foot. Look at that. Dude, Uh, (laughs) what in the fuck? It
1: looks like elephant skin.
0: Yeah, it's fucking (laughs) gnarly. Um, But... That guys like you have adapted your body to this position where you know you can do that and it's just Mm -hmm. a matter of putting in the training runs and making sure you're fueling up correctly and you know a a hundred mile race is not a question whether or not you could do it it's how fast you could do it
1: yeah you know it's it's interesting the the cool thing and this might go back to what you asked like why ultra marathons and i I think it is part of it too is like in a 100 miles it's almost like it's not a matter of when is something going to go wrong it's um or I should say if something is going to go wrong it's a matter of when and how do you respond to it right so like what's
0: a typical thing that goes wrong
1: um you know I think a lot of people will have like cramping or they'll they'll bonk I mean this is one of the reasons why I love the high fat approach is because like Bonking from the like energy side of things is essentially non-existent.
0: Explain bonking to people who don't know what you're talking about.
1: So so bonking is essentially what happens, and it's it's I think it's actually more common in the marathon just because people are running a lot faster in those. But essentially what's happening is you're depleting your glycogen stores to the point where your body doesn't really have access to that fuel substrate anymore. And if you are trying, if you're not good at metabolizing fat or you cannot burn fat at a high rate. Uh, at a decent clip, it, it grinds you to a halt. You see people staggering and falling over and losing their mind, hallucinating and stuff like that in those situations. Um, so like, you know, bonking is something that is is an issue with ultramarathon because you're out there for so long. If you get behind on fueling, you know, you could bonk and stuff like that. Mm. So, you know, part of the reason, you know, I talked about before with like, there's a lot of logistics with an ultramarathon and there's a, these variables are just 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 so prevalent when you're out there that long. That if you can eliminate some of those or reduce the potential of them flaring up, that's usually a win because then there's less chance of something popping up that you wouldn't expect or an uncertain thing happening during the race. And but I mean, they still happen. You know, I've done. The, I would say the most efficient hundred miler I've done is uh, when I I ran 11 hours and 40 minutes and 55 seconds at a race in 2015.
0: Holy shit! You it ran. De- you ran. A- 100 miles in 11 hours
1: yeah that was that was on a tr- that was one on the track in, in Spe- i don't give
0: a fuck if it was on the moon <laughs> that's crazy you ran 11 hours you ran 100 miles yeah so i think the thing that how long does it take to drive 100 miles okay it takes it i mean if you go 100 miles an hour it takes an hour well, you go 50 it, it miles, might take me longer two. to
1: get to the airport if the traffic on the that is fucking is crazy
0: <laughs> how zach bitter broke the u.s. 100 mile record you average seven fucking minutes per <laughs> mile for almost 12 hours. Dude, that is insane. That is fucking insane. Bert Kreischer, he brags when he runs seven minute <laughs> miles for like three miles. It,
1: yeah. what, did, what did Bert end up running that the LA Marathon in? Six and F- a half. Six and a half? That, yeah.
0: I think it was shorter than that. I think it was five, five something. Yeah. No. 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 Yeah, Ari's five and dad. Half, man, my five and yeah. Five and a half. Ari's. He's. Oh, fucking Jamie. <laughs> Jamie's giving me a bad round. <laughs> well, horse. I'll say. I'll say. I'll say this here, Bert. If
1: you're listening, contact me. I'll get you to four and a half in six
0: months. <laughs> Bert, <laughs> you heard him. New challenge. Zach, <laughs> is fucking man. If he tells you can do it, dude. That is. That is an incredible number. That you broke the U.S. 100 mile record by running seven fucking minutes per mile. It's. It's. That's crazy.
1: The thing, the interesting thing I thought about that event was when I was talking about efficiency is I stopped twice during that race and it was for maybe a total of like 60, at most 90 seconds total. And it was just, it was just to pee two times. So like, you
0: ever thought about just peeing your pants and just keep running?
1: Well, wear black (laughs) shorts, keep the party rolling. There was a guy who did that. uh, It was two years before I did that race and he was trying to break 13 hours and he was like right on the edge. I mean, he just whipped it out and peed all over the track. I'm pretty sure. Oh like, God! Yeah. Why wouldn't he be just peeing his own pants? I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think that's probably what I would do. And, and um, it's uh, yeah, that guy doodied himself. Well, ev- <laughs> everyone who's been doing endurance sport long enough will have a have a situation like that. Unfortunately, that guy's got it him. in the front
0: of his legs. He must have just <laughs> yeah, exploded. He lost it. it, Must yeah. have been a bomb. Bomb yeah. went off. Oof! Yeah, it's uh, you know. It's, it's okay to poop your pants. This guy a sign. <laughs> is that him with no. the same guy or I'm a bit. different person? Yeah, it's very uh, sensitive subject for folks.
1: Yeah. Pooping your pants. Yeah. If, it, it's, a, it's a running joke in the endurance running community, though, because if you do it long enough, it's going to probably happen to you eventually. Oh, it has to.
0: Right? <laughs> I would imagine you're running 100 miles and your body's going to yeah. be misfires. For how, sure. How do you time your meals Like before you run? Like Say if you're going to run 100 miles, when's your last meal before you get there?
1: Yeah, so I'll eat a big dinner the night before, probably around like 4 or 5 o'clock. And what would that be? Um, so I'll do like a huge steak. Uh, I try to keep...
0: 16 the f- ounces, 20 ounces?
1: Yeah, at least. Um, really? Mm-hmm. 16, 20 is probably a pretty good number. How much do you weigh? Uh, 140 pounds, give or take. That's a lot of fucking meat.
0: (laughs) That's crazy.
1: Well, this is where it gets fascinating with the lifestyle thing I was telling you about is like there's days during the year where like I'm in training where I'm metabolizing two to three times my resting metabolic rate. So I've got to feed myself appropriately for that. Um, and that
0: means a lot of steak. (laughs) Wow. So is that your primary food source?
1: Um, I don't know if I'd say steak for sure, but definitely fatty meat sources. Um, a lot of like, uh, saturated fat-based oils like coconut oil, um, like ghee, that sort of thing. Um, but yeah, I don't, I don't shy away from meat. I usually have meat or eggs for, for every meal for the most part.
0: Interesting. Or
1: I, in every meal, I should say.
0: Yeah, there's a lot of talk lately about the carnivore diet. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people that are delving into that, including... Jordan Peterson's daughter, which is a really interesting case because she had severe autoimmune disorder. Like she has some severe issues with uh-huh. like horrible arthritis where she's had, um, I know she's had hip replacements and I believe she's having an ankle replace soon too. Okay. Like she's like severe issues. And if she eats anything other than meat, it flares up Ooh. horribly. It's really crazy. Like, yeah. I've, I've never – I, mean, I want to try to talk to her, maybe even get her in here, but um, I, I've never heard anything like that. I
1: thought I heard somewhere um, – it was after the last time you had Jordan on where he was telling you about how he just basically eats meats and greens. Where and That was on his
0: daughter's recommendation.
1: Yeah. I think he's cut out all vegetables right now for at least a trial. I, I thought yeah. I saw something about that. Um, but, yeah, it's it's one of those things where I think like – it's like what I was saying before, like why I don't necessarily want people to say like – well, Zach is saying everyone should do exactly what he's yeah. doing and then, you know, they...
0: That's important to bring up, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Everybody's body is different. For it sure. Really is. I mean,
1: to the point where, like, you have people like that... Like, when I had... Like, the issues I were having were incredibly minor compared to Jordan Peterson's daughter. Like, Like, <laughs> I mean, she's in a spot where... You know, she had to make changes if she wanted to even just probably do daily activities. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, that's that's, I think, the hard part for people to kind of understand is like there are people are at different stages that some people like no one's breaking themselves overnight. So it's like this is something that's chipping away at people. And sometimes it chips away at them quicker in some people and takes longer for others. Uh, so if you have an issue like that, it's like, you almost have to go back to square one and say, what are, give me a couple things that I know aren't going to upset me. And let's start from there and see if we can start adding things back eventually, maybe, or, um, you know, the, we, uh, you know, Sean Baker, you had on the podcast, mm-hmm. um, we actually started recording some podcasts together and, um, we are having this gal come on who's been a carnivore for eight years. And she was kind of in that situation where she had a whole bunch of goofy things going on, even with the keto protocol. And she eventually just cut everything out but meat, and has been doing great ever since. And
0: that's a vegan's nightmare. Hearing yeah, hearing things like that, like no. Well, yeah. the, I just I wish people could separate their ideology mm-hmm. from the reality of certain people's bodies. And and. Unfortunately, and this is very unfortunately, you've got to separate also all your, all the horrors that we associate with factory farming and all the other things mm-hmm. that we associate with meat and meat consumption. Those things are real and terrible and absolutely should be avoided and absolutely factory farming should be illegal. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of the mo- the great horrors of modern society. I really, really do. But take that away. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people don't think animals should die at all, but they don't live forever and other animals eat them. And it's just like, this is just a part of life. Yeah. Then you're into health and whether or not consuming meat is actually healthy. And there's no evidence that it's not. There's Mm -hmm. none.
1: Yeah. You know, the thing that like I want a vegan to sit me down and explain to me is that like when I look at bioavailability um, of, micronutrients it's like you can't find much better than liver Like, no. for, it's like the stuff is super available like, well that's
0: why alpha wolves immediately go to the right. liver when they kill something
1: mm-hmm. yeah so like it, it and it, so like it's like it, I need that exp- like I don't know I'm sure there's ranges of what people can do in terms of absorbing something like, like a non-heme iron versus a heme iron but like for me it's it, it's like I'm gonna if, if my iron levels were low the first thing I'm going to I'm doubling down on liver yeah, doubling down on liver, and it's like as
0: far as nutrients. Yeah, when yeah. You're just talking about just from a p- purely objective standpoint, uh-huh. the consumption of nutrients. Organ meats are some of the best. Yeah, for sure. You, you're aware of Chris Kresser? Mm-hmm. Yep. Chris was a macrobiotic vegan, and you know, I mean, he was like fully hardcore, and uh-huh. just was having all sorts of huge issues. His body just didn't react to it, and he fixed all that by eating organ meat, and mm-hmm. that's like his primary food source.
1: Yeah. Um, what's the gal's name? There's a, a lady who she I can't remember what she had. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to think of it, but if I do, I'll remember. But she did pretty much the same thing.
0: But Where? some people are fine with the vegan diet, too. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing that's yeah. important to point out. It might not be the best for them in terms of like bioavailabil- mm-hmm. bioavailability of nutrients, but it's certainly better than the standard Western diet, the standard sure. American diet. But yeah. well, for some people, they can get by with it and not have any issues.
1: Well, and some people get away with even more. I mean, Courtney DeWalter, yes. she, she's candy, right? Like- she's
0: candy and <laughs> drinks beer and eats nachos. We took her to a bagel place. She fucking chowed out on <laughs> bagels and cream cheese. She's a fucking animal, man. I
1: read. An article about her not too long ago, and she said that she's got like candy jars sitting around the house. Yeah, and she's like, Before I go for a run, I'll go anywhere from just like you know nibbling on it to a small stomach ache. <laughs> 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 so, we're not operating from the same field, I guess, in well, that she's regard. She's a <laughs> real
0: freak, man, you know. Yeah. Um, there's people that know her that just they're stunned by her because mm-hmm. what's interesting about her is she's not a fast runner in per se like like the way she would run a marathon. Mm-hmm. She'd run a marathon in like three hours. So yeah. did she he was, Did she talk about how she got into running when she was on here? I believe she did. Do you remember her specifically Jamie? She just sort of like you she ran in high school I think a little yeah. bit but well, she was uh, teaching as well, okay, and yeah, while yeah. she was teaching, she was running mm-hmm. and, and doing these things, and then eventually she was able to get enough sponsors so right. that she could run full-time, which, which is what she does now, but with, with her, I think, and this is one of the reasons why I'm fascinated by you folks, with her, it's her mind. Her mind is just unbelievably powerful. When she was experiencing cornea edemas, mm. right, her, she couldn't fucking see, man. She was literally blind. She barely could see her feet. And she still won. Yeah. She fell, cracked her head open, blood's pouring down her head, and she's still won. Was that at Run Rabbit Run? I don't know. I think that was what it was. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's what it was. And there's an image of her crossing the finish line. Literally can't see shit. Mm She's got her hands in front of her. She's covered in blood. (laughs) Like, she's a fucking savage. She's, she's,
1: if you take, the interesting thing about ultra marathons is like, we kind of, we're small enough sport where it's like, you can't really say like, oh, I'm a hundred miler. It's like, okay.
0: Everybody would know. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's like, yeah, I know what you're talking about. So like
1: you have everything from a 50 kilometer that's got over 10,000 feet of climbing and descending to a six day event on a track and they're all the same sport yeah when you look at like people who can kind of do really well at all of them or in courtney's case really well at all of them you can't find a better female on the female side of things someone who can do it better than that like no she does it she goes, goes on the track kills it she goes in 240 miles through the mountains kills it it 's crazy
0: <laughs> yeah she 's something un really really unusual mm-hmm. you know uh, a buddy my my friend Brian was texting me about her while she was getting brian is uh, he doesn 't even run i don 't think or barely i mean he 's not a but he was just so fascinated by this one woman that was so far ahead of everybody he's like, <laughs> what the fuck is she doing, man? yeah she beat the second place guy by ten hours in a two hundred and thirty eight mile race twenty two miles she was ahead of him
1: yeah that that 's an interesting topic too where like the where like men and women in ultra marathoning and how that kind of like where
0: it's one of the rare races where women can win
1: yeah and it's the the interesting thing to me about it is women can and do win some races um but when they're like like courtney's very much the most i would say talented person to do one of the 200 milers yet like there hasn't been a lot of what like the the top of the sport hasn't really moved into that i mean courtney certainly is top of the sport but she's think she's the best I think she's the best woman all around. Right. In, if Certainly in the United States. Do you
0: think she's the best at running those 200 milers? Uh, no. Or is, it de- is it dependent upon altitude gain and loss?
1: and Probably, and, and just variables to the day. I, I think, like, so, I mean, there's there's some, like, there's a guy named Killian Jornet, Um and he... How do you spell his last name? J-O-R-N-E-T. And uh, he won the... Um, or he he's 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 essentially the best mountain runner by far. Like there's maybe one other guy who could maybe compete with him at something under 100 miles. But if it's like he's he's he would probably like beat everyone by who knows how much in a 200.
0: We've seen one of these videos before. Yeah, he'll, he'll
1: run on these he'll run on these like ridge lines and like it'll be like death on both sides and he
0: just play that. These fucking guys, man. So. Oh, I have seen. Yes. That this. this isn't even nearly oh, as Jesus thin as some Christ. of them get. Oh, Jesus Christ! Oh my God! Yeah, that's that's crazy. <laughs> uh, uh, look at him. He looks like a freak, too, with a GoPro <laughs> strapped to his head. That's got to throw your balance off. He's running with a GoPro. Put that down. <laughs> pay attention. If that was my son, I'd be like, pay attention to where you're running, oh, kid. Man. Jesus. Yeah, he's
1: interesting because, I mean, his parents were, like, mountaineers, I think. And like so he was, like, basically playing in the mountains at, like, age three and basically grew up doing this stuff. So. Oh, my God. Yeah. So he's the he's the type of guy who, like, he's he's probably the best in the sport right now, and it's Oh, my
0: God. He's jumping around. He's an (laughs) asshole. He's an asshole. He is running, folks. What is this uh, video? It's on his Instagram. I don't really know. Okay. And spell his name K-I... Is that two L's? One L. One L-I-A-N-J-O-R-N-E-T. And he's running in Chamois. How do you say that? France. Chamonix. Chamonix. Chamonix, France. And he's running on what looks like the fin of a shark... (laughs) If a shark was the size of a mountain, <laughs> this guy's a fucking animal, man. That is so scary. Oh, the, the interesting. I get, I get sweaty. My hands are sweating. I freak it's just, out. It's scared
1: just stuff. watching it. And so he's the best. He, yeah, on the mountains for sure. He doesn't do anything that's not mountainous. Like he did Western States and won it in two thousand and eleven. And he was complaining about it being too flat.
0: <laughs> oh Jesus Christ! What is the gain and loss of elevation? In that one's States?
1: net downhill, so it's twenty-three hundred or twenty-three thousand feet down, seventeen thousand feet up. What? So he's complaining about that? Yeah, it's too flat. <laughs>
0: seventeen thousand feet up,
1: and it gets much crazier than that. You can do <sighs> you can do like fifty milers or a hundred k's that have the same profile as that. So you can get like if you're doing like what he's doing, that probably does feel kind of flat for him. Like he likes that steep technical stuff. So. But yeah, so as far as the mountains go, he's he's the guy to beat for sure. And he'll do races on a regular basis when he is running because he's actually a professional skier too. So like he's only running basically half the year and he's skiing the other half.
0: Jesus Christ.
1: Yeah, yeah, so he's he's a fun dude to follow for sure. Um but yeah, it's a When you look at like some of the races that are kind of the big races, like Western States 100 is the most competitive 100 miler in the United States and Ultra Trail Mount Blanc, which is actually by Chamonix where you saw that video, um, is probably at least uh, last year was the most competitive in the world. Um, Those are the races I like to look at to kind of see like where the divergence is from the males and the females. Uh, And if you look at like course records and winning times, like, you know, the men are finishing like two plus hours ahead of the women on a a pretty regular basis on that type of stuff. And, um, at ultra trail Mount Blanc, you know, sometimes it's four or five hours. Uh, and then it, so then you can kind of like, it actually kind of is more in line with what you see with other endurance distances like marathons and stuff like that. Uh, the crazy thing about it though is, uh, that doesn't mean that's going to happen every time. Like there's certainly years where women do really well and finish like in the top 10, amongst in like like western states or utmb um I, one year in 2006 uh this gal nikki kimball uh she finished third overall at western stage which was which is the highest finishing finishing place for a woman other than this other lady named ann Trason, who she doesn't really race anymore but she was she's kind of like the legend of the sport from the women uh where she's she's uh um won western states like 14 times and had like 20 world records at one point and stuff like that and Um, But Nikki Nikki Kimball, she finished third and part of it was because that was like the hottest year in the canyons on record. And if women do one thing, I'm pretty confident women do better at these 100 miles than men is they're not nearly as stupid. Like the (laughs) the men will go out and like if it's competitive, it takes one or two guys to kind of run a little too fast and he's going to bring five, six, seven guys with him. Mm. And then it's, it's actually a fascinating racing concept, I think, because then it's like if you're watching it, you're like... Okay, one of these guys is going to have the race of his life and hold on for dear life and run a spectacular time. Everyone else is going to blow up epically. When's it going to happen? Wow. So you can thin out that men's field really easily when that happens. I think the women are a little smarter than that. They can that happened get. at
0: Moab, right? <laughs> wasn't, wasn't there a guy that was like way out ahead? Uh, yeah, that might have been the case. Yeah, yeah. and he dropped off. Yeah, he was
1: probably running way too fast for what he was capable of doing. And mm. you see that all the time. And it's really easy to do at 100 plus miles because... Really, at the end of the day, like if you feel comfortable at the start, you're probably going too fast.
0: Now, how do you pace yourself in something like that? Like, what do you are you using your watch? Are you are you counting steps? Like, what are you doing?
1: Yeah, um, I like to get to a point where I can use perceived effort, which is basically like listening to my body, and I can know like, okay, this is a little too hard. I need to dial it back. Um, I'll use heart rate a lot in training to kind of get myself to the, the fitness I'm looking for.
0: Yeah, Rich Roll was talking about that. Mm-hmm. He was saying that he ne- he tries to stay under 140 or in the 140 yeah. range. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and the thing about heart rate that I, where, where I kind of deviate from heart rate is when you start getting into these really long events that go past like two or three hours, heart rate starts losing its value in terms of being able to trust it as like a metric that's going to tell you to do the right thing. Like there's so many things that can kind of disrupt that from like dehydration to just cardiac drift, mm. all kinds of all kinds of things. So I think like... If an athlete really has things dialed in, they can use heart rate in training and they can look at heart rate if they want, but they also need to connect that with perceived effort so that if something goes wrong with that or it starts, you know, issues start coming up with the heart rate side of things, they can still kind of like, reflect back in on themselves like, okay, this is a sustainable pace for me or this is not a sustainable pace for me. Mm.
0: Rich Roll, we should point out, is a vegan. Yeah. And, and you know, he's well, one of the few guys that is mm-hmm. fully functional, has no issues at all keeping that diet up
1: yeah yeah and i think he took i mean he puts a lot of work into that i
0: think oh you have to yeah. I, mean, you, you, he's, I mean, you really have to be just super dedicated to mm-hmm. ma- making sure you're getting the proper amount of nutrients, making sure you are getting microalgae and all the mm-hmm. different forms of B12. And.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then whenever someone comes to me and says, like, I'm a vegan or I'm a vegetarian or something like that, it's like, who should I look to? And he's, he's the first guy I point to. He's like, yeah. if, if there's someone doing it right, it's him. So Yeah,
0: no, he's definitely doing it right. Now, when it comes to something like Moab 240, how does someone like Courtney blow that whole field away like that? Um, I think
1: some of it is just that's a really new
0: event like i think they're in their
1: like third or fourth year for two hundreds there's three of them in the united states and they'll, they'll probably be four or five in the next couple of years so it really hasn't it's in its infancy. I mean think of it like uh like with UFC, like back like in the nineties, like and then where it is at today. Right. So like those two hundreds are kinda like UFC was in the nineties. I see. And I mean if that becomes a thing, if people start gravitating toward it, um then you're start you'll see some of these course records just get blown out. I mean, we saw that with the hundred mile distance and we've seen that with, you know, a lot of other trail course records. Um because like a lot of fast guys and gals have moved into the sport in the last five, 10 years. So we've just been, it's been like just deeper talent pool, more likely to get a complete genetic freak, more likely. Right. And the other thing too is like um, a lot, like a lot of times what you have is you get competitive enough in a sport. Then um, people start playing with fire and training and they're doing it because they know they have to get to their optimal best and And
0: sometimes they overtrain
1: right overtrain get hurt and then then, but then the people that make it through that are there as fit as they can get so Mm -hmm. then you can see you can see some really good times do
0: you peak for a race
1: yeah definitely the
0: same like way a fighter would peak for a fight
1: yep I'll usually pick two maybe three races a year and those are the ones that I'm really gonna try to nail those are the ones where like I'm gonna like try to do everything I can to be ready to hurt during that race And then I'll usually do maybe – it's usually ranged. Like I'll usually do about six to eight ultra marathons in a year, and then the other ones are kind of like those training races that I talked about before. Or every once in a while I'll get invited to a race that's like overseas, and it's like a free trip to go to China or something like that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, speaking of hurting during a race, I know that a a lot of ultra runners are utilizing CBD and even – Using edible marijuana while they run, mm-hmm. and that they found that this is uh, a great performance enhancing thing yeah. for them. Yeah, I don't. Have you I, ever messed around with CBD or yeah, or edibles? not
1: not not within workouts though. Like more as like a sleep aid than right. anything, mm-hmm. but like or an inflammation thing. So it's like more of a post. Wasn't there
0: type. there was an Esquire article or Maxim, one of them guy guy magazine type things, and it was all about uh, marijuana and ultra running, and that it's, it's somehow or another uh, become a, a big part of it that for a lot of these guys. Yeah, so I you think can find it, Jamie.
1: I, you know it, it's interesting because like you know marijuana use. I'm not sure about CBD, but marijuana use is like is illegal in competition. Is but, it? Yeah, it's In like, all of them. Uh, yeah, it's it's so there's like a Usada type standard. Yeah, it's the same. It's the Usada protocol. Mm-hmm. So I oh, think okay. I think it's like it has to be below a certain level for like
0: that's great. Then so they they're testing you for EPO and all those things.
1: Yeah, I mean it's still pretty primitive and ultra running. Um, like there's testing at some of the big races, uh, and that's even relatively new, like in the last year or so. So like Western states, they'll test they'll test uh, the top ten on each side, and then a few random people, and then uh, I think. UTMB, which is the other big 100 mile I was talking about, they test. Like I was tested after, when I broke the 12 hour world record in 2013, I got tested after that. Um,
0: Have there been any big superstars that pissed hot?
1: um, There's been people who have. uh, They weren't like individuals that were like kind of like a poster child of the sport necessarily though limbs
0: lance Armstrong right nothing running
1: nothing like that so um and it's it's really interesting because like i mean there's certainly people skirting the rules in ultra marathon running um i have no doubt about it but uh, what do you think they're doing uh probably like what is it uh I, i doubt they're doing like blood transfusion things like tour de france style because i mean that's Mm -hmm. an expensive hard thing to kind of put together you need a doctor essentially if i'm understanding it all right so they're probably just doing little like minor things like maybe like peptides or something like Mm -hmm. that would be my guess um but i also do think it's not nearly like people, people i think nowadays like with icarus and all that stuff like now people are on the opposite side of what they were a few years ago where they they suspect everyone's doing it versus, uh, no, they're not doing it, they haven't gotten caught yet, which is where we were probably a few years ago. Um, In ultra running, I think think the culture plays a huge role in that. I mean, like when you had Lance on, I think he was pretty good about talking about like how like, you know, like you come into the sport, you go over to Europe to race and like they ask you to get on a protocol. If you say no, they send you back. Like it's like, you know, that's a cultural thing then too. Like, like it's like you, you have to do it to be in the sport almost. And with ultra running, it's kind of the opposite, I think. Um, I think the culture is stay away from that stuff mm. like like we don't we don't want that because and,
0: it's a mind thing almost more than anything which is why yeah. the people like Courtney who aren't maybe the fastest marathon runners but have this just bulletproof mind mm-hmm. that allows them to compete and, and that you really there's no supplement for your mind for right. willpower
1: yeah yeah and there's things that can go wrong just from the duration you're out there
0: <laughs> mm. yeah I can imagine I mean, it seems to be, so much of it seems to be your ability to deal with discomfort and pain Mm -hmm. and just press on.
1: Yeah, you know, the way I describe ultramarathon running is it's still a running sport.
0: See, runners high. The athletes use marijuana to improve their training. What was that in? Was it in uh, Esquire? I typed the Guardian? Esquire. I typed both of those in, yeah, but mm. Guardian came up. Stone marathon runners may seem like walking contradictions, but there are hints that the drug and long-distance running could go hand-in-hand. I'll tell you what, man. I've only done it a few times where I got super baked and went running. It feels awesome. <laughs> <laughs> feels great. You feel so scared, though. Like, ah, what am I doing? <laughs> <laughs> But I would imagine for, for some people it's, uh, it's, it's uh, you know, euphoric. Fifty percent of the runners I mean are avid cannabis users. To say almost none of them are open about it, says Avery Collins. Oh, yeah.
1: Yeah, a- Avery Collins is, you know, he's interesting because he's, he's a spokesperson for marijuana use. And, you know, like, I mean, I don't, you don't have to look far into, like, marijuana and how it got to be where it is in terms of its legality or illegality. To recognize there's some tomfoolery going on there, like, yeah. with, I mean, you don't have to be like a historian to find out like, like why that's criminalized, whereas alcohol isn't, and that sort of sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and Avery's been like a pretty big proponent about kind of uh, destigmatizing it. Um, and but you know he understands at least you know, he understands that it's illegal in competition, and I think he's been tested at least twice after races. I mean, he was six that western states last year so he had gotten tested for that hmm. and uh, is
0: caffeine illegal in competition
1: no um i think at a certain level i think it is although they may have just removed it i'm trying to remember if i saw that right but the, it used to be like you can have caffeine but at a certain level, it would be illegal, but it was like the equivalent of like 16 cups of coffee or something like oh, that. So okay. you'd have to put down like four of those nitros or six of those nitros <laughs> right before your race if you wanted any any chance of going over that. And you'd probably go into cardiac arrest before that
0: anyway. Right. And by the time you got to the end of the race, it would probably be out of your system anyway. Yeah. Well, yeah. it's interesting. I actually, this
1: is diverging a little bit, but I, I read a story a while ago that there was some high school kid who was playing football. And he like slammed a Red Bull or some one of those like high caffeine energy drinks and then like was like on the kick return team or something. Returned a kick for a touchdown, was just jacked out of his mind, slammed another one, and then went back on the field and had a heart attack or something
0: like that. I'm sure it could happen so, if you go too hard. Yeah. I mean, it's not just caffeine, right? A lot of those things have a bunch of other wacky stimulants in them, too. Yeah. Like, you remember Red Lines? Oh, yeah. I took one of those <laughs> once. I drank the whole bottle and then I looked at it. It says like four servings. I'm like, yeah. oh, shit. And well, each serving is like 150 <laughs> milligrams of caffeine or something nuts.
1: Yeah, well, and then they put a bunch of other stimulants in there that people don't know about. Yeah. So yeah, it's, taurine yep. and all sorts of other mm-hmm. shit in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The kind of those pre-workout supplements oh, were kind yeah. of wild. Ephedrine.
0: Yeah. Oh, remember those uh, ripped Fuel? I took Rip Fuel once and went to a jiu-jitsu class. I had to stop. I had to stop training. I'm like, <laughs> I'm, I'm my heart is beating <laughs> so fast, I could die here. Like this yeah. is. This is not good. And that was right before they pulled it off the market.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Cut it in just in time, I guess.
0: There was another thing they pulled off the market, too, that was killing people. Was it called Jack 3D? Oh, I think I remember hearing about that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That killed a few folks. (sighs) I think it killed a few folks in the military. So, you know, you're not talking about, like, some fucking sickly old man's like i'm about to get checked no it's like (laughs) fucking soldiers yeah
1: yeah i mean i'll use caffeine in races i think it's pretty clear that caffeine is a performance enhancing and it just happens to be one that's that's legal but it's a
0: mild performance enhancing for sure are you using coffee or are you uh, taking pills
1: a little i've done a variety of different things um and i've done uh like i did a race once where i was trying to figure out like my fueling rate and like kind of what was ideal and this was a while ago but I did a 100k race and I did nothing but mountain dew and it was like wow I think I took in it ended up coming out to about 100 and fifty eight calories an hour of just Mountain Dew with some elect I added some electrolytes to well, it. Well I
0: before. feel like if you if you're just sitting around doing nothing, Mountain Dew's probably terrible for you. For but sure. if you're running hills mm-hmm. and really kicking ass like that, the amount of fuel you're burning, yeah. Mountain Dew might be a great move. If you
1: don't go overboard, I mean so does at every aid station at pretty much every race. Really? Yeah. So it's definitely something people have identified as useful But, like, since then, I've been, uh, that product I was talking about before, the X Endurance Fuel 5, they make one with a little bit of caffeine in it, too. So now Mm. I'll usually, if I want caffeine, I'll just use that instead of the non-caffeinated one. Um, But then I'll do, like, you know, I'll still sometimes do a little bit of soda, especially at the end of the race, um, just to kind of change things up a little bit. Because that's the other thing, too, is, like, if you do the same thing, you know, after a while, it's like, just give me something different. (laughs)
0: Yeah, well, I know Floyd Mayweather drinks soda after he works out oh really yeah and and people are like what an idiot and i was like maybe not (laughs) first of all maybe the best boxer of all time so definitely not an idiot he's doing something right he's doing something right and (laughs) if he's that good on top of you know having a terrible diet and i think part of his like terrible diet is a joke like he'll he'll eat cheeseburgers and shit and show you and say look motherfucker i'm kicking everybody's ass eating cheeseburgers but not really. He really does He goes does home have, and the chef's making yeah, some
1: gourmet meal. <laughs> had, they, I mean, he
0: has a personal chef. There was a whole right. article about it recently. But I think that the fueling up with, like, really heavy sugary drinks after a very hard workout, it's not a bad idea to replenish the glycogen in your muscles.
1: Yeah, I think that depends. I think, like, I think the science is pretty clear if you're on a high carbohydrate or at least a higher carbohydrate diet that, you know, carbohydrate and protein within, like, you know... Thirty forty five minutes of the post workout is going to be in your best interest. Uh, a lot of people
0: like chocolate milk for that, right?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's gotten that's gotten kind of like labeled as that perfect ratio. Yeah, um, of protein with protein sugar. protein with sugar. Yep. Where where it's not clear, or at least it's it's getting clearer, is like where the variance there is for someone like myself who's following a high fat approach. Yeah. Um, and we we have had a little bit of a glimpse into it from some studies. Uh, and I, th- the interesting thing is what they, they did this one study called the faster study. Um, and it looked at, uh, like it was, it was 10 guys who were on a high fat diet and 10 guys who were on a high carbohydrate diet. And, um, the guys on the, they tried to pair them up as twins. So like similar, like performance achievements, uh, similar like body metrics, and then kind of compare the two And the, the high fat cohort. Actually, when they finished the, the one of the workouts was a three hour treadmill session. And then they were, they taken like blood tests and stuff and they had like the oxygen mask and things like throughout the course of it. And they tested things before or after. Um, and one thing they they saw was like uh, the the high fat folks actually had this kind of big like surge of glucose in the bloodstream post-workout. So the thought is like, you might not want to double down on that mm. if you're in a fat adapted state, because like, I mean, some of the levels and this is, it goes back to, it would have been like, like, this is what something I'd like to ask uh, Dr. Atia about, um, is that like you get these big kind of post-workout, like blood glucose spikes, um, sometimes to the level of like what would look like a type two diabetic. Um, but it's not, it's not, it's, it's in a different context than what you would see in someone who's just like following a normal diet where that would be kind of a red flag. And, um. So, like, to, kind of to hit the body with another source of glucose, essentially, might not be uh, affecting you the same way. Mm. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting stuff. So, like, it's actually, like, um, what I've done sometimes, too, is after a big, hard workout, if I'm not hungry, I don't always eat right away. I wait for my stomach to come around and, like, my body to say, you're hungry, just to let all that stuff kind of go through. And then, then I'll have, uh, depending, on, depending on what I'm doing next, like uh, if, I'm, if I'm taking an easy day or a couple easy days, I'll go like really low carb. But if I'm going back out that afternoon for another workout or the next morning for like a speed session or something like that, that's when maybe I would try to drop in a little bit of carbohydrate to kind of speed up the glycogen uh, side of things. So I'm ready for that next one.
0: Well, Zach, you're a bad motherfucker. <laughs> I wish you all the best. And I really appreciate you coming down here and talking to us. And it's uh, fascinating what you do, man. And th- thanks, thanks, thanks for, being for having here, me on. Man. Thank you. Thank you very much, man. Thank you. <laughs> All right, folks, we did it. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. Good times, motherfuckers. Thank you to Onnit. Go to O-N-N-I-T. Use the code word ROGAN and you will save 10% off any and all supplements. Thank you also to Policy Genius, the easiest way to compare life insurance online. The easiest way to compare top insurance insurers and find the best value for you. PolicyGenius.com. No sales pressure, zero hassle, and it's free. Why fuck around? Go to PolicyGenius.com Now we're also brought to you the brought to you oh, I almost fucked it up by NetSuite. Get NetSuite's guide, Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth, when you go to netsuite.com forward slash Rogan. You can download it for free. Crushing the Five Barriers to Growth today. Get that guide for free at NetSuite.com forward slash Rogan. That's NetSuite s u i t e n e t s u i t e dot com forward slash rogan and that's it we did it uh, that was a fun podcast interesting dude kind of crazy they're, they're all crazy you have to be to do that shit um, thank you appreciate you guys much love to you all bye bye